sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and How our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. This is God's word. For Palm Sunday today and Easter Sunday next week, we're going to be in in Luke chapter 24 here. This chapter records events from the original Resurrection Sunday, how that afternoon, this very day, the text says, two of these disciples Uh, from the lesser known following of Jesus, that is all we have is one proper name, Clopas. Uh, J.I. Packer, quoted to you last week, uh, says uh, he he believes this is a married couple. Uh, We don't know that for sure, but it's interesting to picture them as such. Regardless, these two disciples from the lesser known following of Jesus They're walking to Emmaus, where they were from, presumably, and they get joined by Jesus himself, who just that morning walked out of his tomb. Next week, Easter Sunday, we'll look at Jesus then joining his more familiar to us disciples, the 11, now minus Judas, of course. But for both sets of disciples, we'll see this repeated in Luke 24, for both sets, the 11 familiar to us, these two unfamiliar to us, To both sets of disciples, Jesus emphasized the necessity of his suffering as he did in order for him to rise as he had and was appearing to them day of here in Luke 24. 
If I asked you, would you rather hear from Jesus or see him, I would be setting you up for a false choice. I mean, we would like to get both if we could, and someday we'll have both in his presence, ever more uh, alive. Uh, we've talked about that the last, over the span of the last three months as we've been in the book of Revelation. But these two from Emmaus, as well as the 11 that we'll come to next week, they get both sight and sound of Jesus himself. And yet even back then, getting to see him, the emphasis was really on hearing him, which is fascinating because they get to see him, they get to touch him, they get to smell him. And yet the emphasis is on, with these two from Emmaus, the emphasis is on hearing him. And Jesus will continue that emphasis on into the next passage, even though he'll, he'll say to the disciples, you can, you can touch me and, and know that it's me. But with these two, it's uh, an emphasis primarily on hearing him. For this encounter that these two have, this section of, Rome, uh, of Luke 24 that we're in, for these two, the entirety of this encounter right to the end, they don't know they're seeing Jesus again, alive, except they knew by the burning in their hearts, as they put it in verse 32, they knew they were hearing the word of God come to life from the lips of this one who joined them. Now, why is this story here? This and what follows thereafter, his appearing to the 11 disciples, which we'll get into next week, Easter Sunday. What purpose does Luke 24 serve? Well, there's a, a large-scale purpose and a small-scale purpose both to this particular chapter. On the large scale, these stories Luke anchors his gospel with tell us the point of Jesus' life story is his life anew. His life after death, that all the signs pointed that direction, that the Savior would come, that he would suffer, die, and rise again. And this is why we believe in him, his life after death. It's not enough just to believe Jesus died. It's vital we believe that. It's essential that we believe that. That he died. And, and these disciples, these two clearly uh, moving from uh, Jerusalem to Emmaus, they clearly believe that he died. It's why they're sad. Verse 17. It's like they needed uh, the Broadway cast of Dear Evan Hansen to sing to them, you will be found. Even when the dark comes crashing through, when you need a friend to carry you and you're broken on the ground, you will be found. I love that song. These two were broken on the ground over what happened to Jesus. They're sad about it. But then Jesus joins them, walking to Emmaus. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stand still, looking sad. Verse 18, one of them named Clopas answered him, Are you the only visitor of Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there these days? In other words, do you, do you know how much hope we've invested in this one who is now dead? So they certainly believe that Jesus died. They knew that. 
what they had yet to believe, and these were disciples, what they had yet to believe was that Jesus lived on after dying and not in this living memory in our hearts we cherish kind of way. No, he live lives. He walks this road and, and even later on, we'll see next week, eats some fish with the disciples. What's the point? Life, capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E, life after death is the point of Jesus' life story. Jesus' life story includes the cross. Certainly the cross is huge. But life after that, life after his death by the cross is the point of his life story. This is the large-scale purpose of Luke, including this in his gospel. Jesus' resurrection from death is the life, is the point of his life story. It's what the scriptures pointed to all along in pointing to Jesus, that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would rise. But we also see that's the large-scale purpose. The life story of Jesus is his life anew. But on the small scale, there's a small-scale purpose which we see in the movement here from the crush of disappointment to the surprise of recognition. The crush of disappointment Clopas and his companion felt yields to the surprise of recognition. That's two things. We'll take each one as our takeaways today. First, we'll look at the crush of disappointment, and then we'll look at the surprise of recognition. First, the crush of disappointment, which a lot of us are feeling these days related to isolating and wearing masks now and changes in normal routines. It's like the world has been turned upside down. Well, these two, in verse 15, we see them walking along. They're already disciples, keep that in mind, and their world has been turned upside down, and they're walking along, verse 15, talking and discussing together this week that had been. Just a week prior, in crowded Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, Jesus entering the city with all this fanfare, people singing and shouting, Hosanna, which means save. In verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, they say. Verse 21, we, we, we hoped he would Hosanna us, but by Friday he's dead, by crucifixion, the worst possible way to die. And now what are we to do? The question they are wrestling with is, do we go on believing in him? That's the question. Do we go on believing in him? And for this, Jesus calls them slow-hearted. Look at verse 25 again, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, slow-hearted is not stupid-hearted. And calling them foolish is not insulting them. He's not belittling them. Instead, he's pointing out something about where they've located themselves now. They're in this stuck place. They're stuck. But should they be 
with everything they already knew. Jesus is going to amplify and expand on what they knew, but they already knew enough to be his disciple. And yet, do we go on believing in Jesus? Because things have not turned out the way we thought they were going to. These two on the way to Emmaus, they aren't in shock. They're stuck. There's a difference. Shock renders you immobile. Stuck is not a place of immobile. You live and move and have your being in stuck places, but you feel the crush of disappointment when you're stuck. You know that place? And maybe a lot of us know it all too well. Maybe we can acknowledge the slow-heartedness that comes from it by our own experience. In fact, see if you recognize yourself in uh, Mark Buchanan's words. This comes from his book, Your God is Too Safe. He says, most Christians I know are stuck. We feel caught in jobs we barely endure and often despise. In relationships that plunder us, baffle us, deepen rather than remove our aloneness. In activities that are soul-deadening in their triviality and yet insatiably addictive. We squander jewels and hoard baubles. We're experiencing harrowing emotions over mere trifles and can barely muster a dull ache over matters of shattering tragedy. We feel we've no time and no energy for the things we know matter deeply, but then we waste so much time in diversions. And he goes on and on. Stuck places. Not a place of shock. A place where you're stuck. You're under the crush of disappointment. And that disappointment always has an antecedent. There's something that's causing this. These two on the way to Emmaus from Jerusalem are struck in, they're, they're stuck in the crush of disappointment. And it is for them, do we go on believing in Jesus, who's now dead, so far as they know? And Jesus, for his part, he doesn't resolve it from them by mere appearing. Like, it's me, look at the wounds, guys, or Clopas and his wife, couple. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I, I'm, I'm here with you. No, verse 16 says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so Jesus finds them in their disappointment. In their case, disappointment directly related to his dying. And the hopes that they felt. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right before that in Psalm 118 that I read you earlier. Save us, O Lord our God. This is the day that you have made and we'll rejoice and be glad in it. All this has cascaded into this just this thud. It's over. Do we go on believing in Jesus? And Jesus finds them in this, this disappointment, joins them in it, but doesn't lift it off of them immediately. And doesn't do it by appearance, by saying, hey, it's me, look. Let's talk about what you're feeling. No, what he does instead is he walks them through how he'd already appeared to them for centuries. 
in their Old Testament. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus led them back to the God they already knew. Now we'll unpack that. But Jesus led them to discover the God they already knew. This is instructive for us, both in large-scale considerations and small-scale. We who do not see Jesus, in fact, the Bible acknowledges this in the first letter Peter wrote, though you do not see him, you love him. Jesus even said to his disciples, blessed are those who have not seen me and believe. And so again, the emphasis is not so much on seeing him, but hearing him. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And Jesus gives these two disciples this commentary of all the places that he was hidden in plain sight in the, in the Old Testament and connects them to his life as he lived it, his death as he experienced it, and now here he was talking to them. They still don't, they still don't know it's him, not till the very end. So what's charging them, what's burning in their hearts is this word they're getting from Jesus that is his commentary on the scriptures. We're centuries removed from all this taking place. And yet we have believed in him and are believing in him ongoing, which is what saving faith is. It's not just this point in time I believed, I walked an aisle, I went out in some room with somebody named Bill and I, I filled out a card and then I got the church's giving envelopes mailed to me the rest of my life. It begins at a point, belief. There's a catalyst, a moment, a spark, but it, it goes on. We go on believing. There's a sense in which belief is perpetually present tense. And so we go on believing in him, and as we do, we encounter disappointments in a fallen world. The crush of disappointments, large and small. And the reason, though, why we go on believing in him is because we know he's defeated the ultimate enemy. He's conquered the ultimate in opposition against us, which is death. He's risen from it. That fact changes everything in all of life for us. It impinges on everything, every possible thing. But what I mean by discovering the God we already know, I think that's what's happening in this particular story with these two disciples who are now wondering, do they go on believing in Jesus? Because he's dead. And while we live in the light of the resurrection, we still have disappointments. We still have questions. A lot of people do. And most of us, I think, need to continually be discovering the God we already know. What I mean by that is the God-related disappointments that we feel are often conditioned by our familiarity with God. As evangelical Christians, this is the element. A lot of us grew up in church. We've been around this. Uh, we're very similar to first century people of Israel in that we're familiar with God. We have all these facts about him. Supports our belief. We have all this experience in Christian community and evangelical culture and subcultures within the evangelical culture and churches and schools and even workplaces. 
But then life throws you a curveball or two or three or a nasty sinker. Or you find in failing in some way or even in succeeding in some way that either the success is not enough and you know it or the failure has shown that you're not enough in some way as much as you thought you were, and in the crush of that disappointment, either side, in the crush of that, what you know about God is technically accurate. But it's not sufficient to sustain you. It's not sufficient to see you through. And that's because you're missing some things. And you're not missing things in your knowledge. You're missing some things in your experience of the knowledge you have. Like when we come to discover that we don't really love God for God, for himself. We love God for the things he gives us, what we get from him, so long as we think the getting is good. Or like we, when we find out that we don't really believe in the goodness of God, regardless of the circumstances that, that I'm in. God is good so long as I'm good. Happy, safe, self-fulfilled. And when I'm not those things, I then have reason to question his goodness. See, we've got to meet ourselves on this road to Emmaus in the personages of these two disciples, believers. They're on the inside. And we see our own slow-heartedness. Here we are walking with God day in, day out as believers. We're Christians, but have we yet discovered the God we already know? That's what's happening for these two in our text. Jesus is dead. That's it. <laughs> Too bad. We invested all these hopes. Didn't come through. I prayed for years for God to do this for me and done it. So, you know. I uh, raised support to go over and do this work and I don't have a lot of fruit. Whatever it is, we have to discover the God we already know in those things too. See, the way that Jesus intersects these disciples is fascinating because he says, well, what are you talking about? And they tell him, and he goes, wait a minute. What do the scriptures tell you? What do you already know? Don't you already know? Even from just a face value, plain reading of the law and the prophets that God can be up to more than we can fully account for at any given time? Haven't you saved some room for that in, in your theology? They hadn't. Don't the scriptures tell us that God's ways are not our own and he's necessarily bigger and truer than we are and surpassingly better than any of us can be on our best day? Don't the scriptures tell us that God is altogether sufficient in himself? He doesn't need our little hopes. They say in verse 21, again, we'd hoped 
He was the one who was going to deliver Israel, redeem Israel. That's what you needed him to do? That, that's the little project you wanted him to come through on? You, you wanted him to cast the Romans out? Is that what I'm hearing you say, two disciples from Emmaus? He answers that with this, verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that is the sent one, the, the, the anointed one, the one who was, they were waiting on, the Messiah, that's what Christ means? Was it not necessary, verse 26, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Where does glory enter into all this death stuff? These two disciples from Emmaus are wrestling with glory. Yeah, the very thing Jesus makes accessible to us, which we're cut off from in our sin. We're brought in on his glory, not just because of his suffering, but because he rose up from that suffering. This is always the rest of the story for you and for me, no matter what story we find ourselves in. The resurrection is always the story for us. Now, Jesus knows that even as he tells these disciples, showing them not his wounds, but all the places in the scriptures where he was all along, he knows it's still going to be too much for them. But that's kind of the point. It's kind of the point when we've been brought in on his glory. We're always supposed to feel that God is too much for us and beyond us, and yet wants us near to his great person. And I find why this doesn't cure me of disappointments I might feel and experience, it, it does help me to navigate them. To realize that God, in his own counsels and working out his purposes on earth, is always too much for me to contain and yet wants me near him there's always a green light in approaching him when we belong to him and he's taken us to be his own and so even when I'm under the crush of some disappointment whatever it is and I, and I that's the thing I want to give up believing that's the very thing I have to fight for not give up believing that God is always above and beyond and better and truer than I am yes I always believe that but I've got to believe with that he wants you and me near him. This takes us to the surprise of recognition. The second of two takeaways from this story. The crush of disappointment yields to the surprise of recognition. They say it in verse 32. Verse 32. They say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Now this comes right on the heels of verse 31 saying, their eyes are opened. Verse 16 says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 31 says now their eyes are open, they recognize him, he broke the bread, and then he vanishes from their sight. That's verse 31. Verse 32, then the surprise of recognition as it expresses itself in this wonderful phrase, they use the burning in our hearts didn't we realize all along the way that we were discovering the God that we we already knew it's still like this for us 
I think we can safely say um, following Jesus, whatever else we make of following Jesus, following Jesus is an experience of slow-heartedness and burning-heartedness, both and sometimes even at the same time. Burning-heartedness is an effect. It's a, it's a, it's a combustion that requires uh, a spark. And the spark in this story was Jesus' words about the Word. His commentary on Scripture was combustive in their hearts. The Spirit of God always uses this. He's, he's working through this. The very same today in our own hearts, drawing us again and again over and over to the Jesus who loves us and wants us near Him. But again, it, it wasn't so much about seeing Jesus. They get just a little glimpse at the end. Oh, oh, and then he's gone. It was about hearing him speak to them through what he'd already revealed to them centuries before, going back into the law, where Moses said, Someday a prophet like me will emerge from among you. And the prophets who prophesied about things that Peter says, again, to quote the first book of Peter, that they did not uh, always understand what the Spirit of God was showing them about the one who was to come, but one was coming, and he would both suffer and reign, and that's what they couldn't, that's the math they couldn't do. That was the calculus that was so difficult. How, how can he suffer and reign? Right through a tomb that required, walking out of it, following Jesus, whatever else we make of it. Following Jesus is the experience of slow-heartedness and burning-heartedness both. There's a poetic uh, expression by T.S. Eliot that goes like this. At the end of all our exploring, we will arrive to where we started and know the place for the first time. At the end of all our exploring, we'll be to arrive at the place we started and know the place for the first time. By exploring, Eliot means our restlessness, our discontent, all the ways that we get disappointed and then try to get around that disappointment and over it, and ways we try to avoid it, more disappointment in, in others and in ourselves. We go exploring to find ways uh, around it, to dull the pain, to medicate it. We go looking for someone, we go looking for something to, to fill us, something that won't hurt us, something that won't let us down. As a boy from uh, Alabama, I loved the tweet yesterday concerning the governor there. Quote, in the most Alabama moment ever, Governor Kay Ivey says the shelter in place gives Alabama residents a greater chance to have fall football and then reads a Bible verse. The end of our exploring comes not in the fall when we get to go back to the stadiums, if we do. Lord, we hope so. Men have nothing to talk about if we can't talk about SEC football. We will, we, will, we will all kill over with depression if that doesn't happen. The end of our exploring comes not when we find that thing that we think we have to have. A season, an experience, a mate, 
a kind of job, a certain income, a school, a place to live. The end of our exploring comes not when we find that thing we have to have. All of these things I mentioned are good things, fine things. They just can't bear the weight of our life. They can't bear the weight of our hope. And so the end of our exploring comes not when we find that thing that we think we have to have, but when we accept being found by the one who is knowable and yet cannot be fully known at the same time. We're always in going forward with God. Anytime you go forward with God, and that's what we all want to do, we're always arriving back to where we started. Not the beginning, but being surprised again by the recognition that God wants to be near us. That God uh, has purposes for us. That God uh, has opened himself to be known by us and the discoveries we make through his word are never ending. I think that's the story in this text. And I, I think this text this morning speaks particularly to people who've grown up in, in this. Those of us who've grown up in church and know nothing but this story. In other words, we've known nothing but the Bible. And the Bible's pointing to Jesus. I mean, when we were little kids, we knew the answer in Sunday school was Jesus. The Sunday school teacher might have asked us, what do you see outside crawling up the tree? And Jesus, oh, it's a squirrel. I mean, that's how we, that's how we get in evangelical culture. We, we know who Jesus is, and yet so many of us evangelicals feel as far away from him. Why is that? We've got to discover the God we already know. That's the story in this text. We who've grown up in church, we who've been around the Bible our whole lives, you know, maybe you've never left. And yet you find this slow heartedness in yourself. And you didn't think it would be here at, at 51 years of age. You find this slow heartedness in yourself and, and you wonder Am I going to get out of college and be a believer? You find this slow heartedness in yourself in this time of COVID-19. And you wonder, you know, why do my resources internally seem so meager at, at, at having a, a meaning to life that, that these kinds of scenarios, yeah, they affect and they adjust, but they can't take it away. And, and yet I feel like I got nothing. I know I don't cognitively. I know I don't, but emotionally, I, everything's in upheaval and I don't, know how to, I don't know how to navigate that. We'll observe Easter this week and next Sunday is Easter Sunday and, and that's not the end of Easter with the day when church ends, that's Easter's over. Jesus appeared for 40 days, you know, post-resurrection to his, the Easter season is long. But it's Easter time again, Easter time and coronavirus time. Some people are calling it, uh, some of the higher church people, liturgical people are calling this uh, coronavirus tide. <laughs> and though our assembling of ourselves has been rightly held up, rightly, to stem the spread of a dangerous illness, the spread of Easter continues. 
Easter still goes viral. And so I hope our Easter observances are meaningful to us despite social isolation and safer at home orders, which we're tired of. I don't know, I, I don't know, I loved watching those two uh, songs from our past Palm Sunday. It put a lump in my throat because you all were here. And this stage was full. And, and so this, this is not, we're making the best of the time. We're building the plane as we're flying it. Easter time is meaningful to us. We all hope for a meaningful Easter, even though we're going through all this stuff. But even when we find our beliefs meaningful, slow heartedness can still dog our steps. Maybe there are certain questions you have today that are larger than the answers you used to rely on. And now you think those answers are pat. Uh, maybe it's certain sins that keep finding their way back to you. And you keep finding your way back to them, though you go through these seasons of standing firm and strong. And then suddenly it's, oh gosh, why am I lying again? Why am I whatever again? Maybe it's certain anxieties and fears that as the shadows of the day lengthen, they grow with you. Your kids are getting older. Your parents are getting older. You're getting older. There's fears and anxieties in that for all of us. Maybe it's that certain disappointments have crushed us more than we realize. It's not that we need to go drum up some excitement for ourselves in order to get to burning heartedness and then we'll, we'll stick the landing there. I, I grew up in a revivalist uh, kind of tradition, small town Southern Baptist expression and, and, and revivalists would come through twice a year and they would always give us this impression that excitement for God is a condition we never fall out of if we're really saved. And man, I want passion for God. I hope I have passion for God. I think I do. But God's going to allow some disappointments. He's going to allow some. He's going to send some. It won't immediately lift me out. Anxieties and fears and questions and doubts and complaints and slow heartedness. It's all in this text. It's all in the personages of these two Emmaus disciples. It's all gonna it's it's gonna hound our steps in a walk with God. It will. And so what do we do? What we do is what Christians before us did. These Christians we read about. And what Old Testament believers did. We keep going to the scriptures. And we stay close to the body of Christ. But in going to the scriptures, what I find generates the burning heartedness for me. Is every line. Every book of scripture not as a where's Waldo experience, I'm not setting it up like this, but I see Jesus everywhere. All through the scripture, I see that God in Christ is good and that he is good to me and that my life story has become a resurrection story. 
It's the story of his life anew offered to me. He keeps going with me. Even when I feel broken on the ground, (laughs) I don't need the Broadway chorus of Dear Evan Hansen to sing to me that I'll be found. Though that's nice, I like the song. And even when they do sing it, that and a thousand other songs I hear, in those songs, they're meaningful if I hear the echo of the original love song of the Savior who at some point joins each of us on our life journey, our road. We didn't know it was him at first, but eventually we do. Eventually our eyes are open, and when they are, when our eyes are opened, aren't we a little bit always surprised by the recognition? You want something to do with me? You are for me? I think that's the point. To when we read scripture, read it until it comes to life with the person of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, content in his own person, and yet once fellowship, unbroken with us, moved heaven and earth to, to repair the breach and to bring us in. See, we get conceptually that it's about Jesus, the Bible is, we we have that ingrained in us as evangelicals. We, we understand that the Bible is a story, as I've said in some past sermons this past year, is a story about what God's doing about evil, and, and, and that runs right through the appearing of his son. And it's punctuated by the second appearing of his son, as we talked about in Revelation. But I contribute to the evil in, in ways I know, in ways I don't, ways that are unrighteous, in ways that are self-righteous, I'm the reason he went to the cross, and so are you. And so were these two from Emmaus. But Jesus comes to me and to you on our road and turns the point of our life story into the point of his. Life anew. Would you pray with me and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for this uh, text, this story, which is a great story of these two disciples from Emmaus. Getting to walk along with you, Lord, and hear from you where you were all along. Father, I pray that we will discover you who we already know that you will bring us further up and further in. You will use these days to do that, not just normal days, but these days as well. We thank you for Easter time. We thank you for giving to us the confidence that comes from resurrection. Our own because of your son's resurrection, that we can look forward to our own because of his. His is dominant. He is the object of our esteem and our desire and our affection. Would you make it so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.